Welcome to the Southridge Church Podcast. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we want you to stay connected with us. You can find us on sanjose.cc or subscribe to the podcast. Right. I'm glad you're here. James chapter number two. James chapter number two. And I would like to dive right into the scripture today. I want to look at just nine verses this morning. James 2, verse number one through nine. And the word of God says this, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. The book of James is a familiar book. It's a short book. It's packed filled with practical truths that's meant to be put into practice. And all throughout the book, there's a word, there's a a theme throughout the book. It's the theme of faith. God wants you and I to be people of faith, men and women of faith, strong faith. But it's one thing to say you have faith, to profess you have faith, and it's another thing to have proof of your faith. And so the writer James is actually diving into the proof. My wife is into this new podcast show. Somebody in the first service kind of got her hooked on it. It's called Crime Junkies on Spotify. Anybody ever heard of Crime Junkies? Okay, there you go. Got a few of you in here. And uh, she came to me this week and she was like, hey, have you heard of such and such a murder that happened? And I said, I don't think so. She said, well, it happened in Fresno in 1996. And I said, well, you some of you got to know about Fresno. Like, there's nothing there. So we try to be really good at being really bad. Okay, it's just the thing about Fresno. There's nothing else going on. So there's all kinds of horrific things that happen in Fresno because nothing else happened. So we were the stabbing capital. We were the uh, car theft capital. We were all kinds of things. And uh, she was into that show. One of the things that she brought to my attention was in every show, they're trying to find something. There's a perpetrator and they're trying to get the proof so they can punish the perpetrator. Because without the proof, they can't punish this person. There's no proof. So that detective is looking for the proof. God is our great detective, and he is looking for the proof of your faith. Many times we say when we baptize somebody, upon your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness, raised to walk in newness of life. And we we use that one little word we rarely use, profession. It's a profession. Now, it's not something that you do, but it's what you profess with your mouth. And yet, 
God is more interested in proof than profession. He's interested in that, that your faith not just have symbolism, but substance. He's interested in that you have shoe leather faith, that it, the rubber meets the road. You see, today in the church has been a great divorce between what we believe and how we behave. There's been a divorce between our principles and our practice. There's a divorce. There's a great divorce between what we say and how we live. And the sad truth is the church is living out that consequence of that. You see what I mean? Because people are skeptical of Christians today. If anything, they're more uh, antagonistic towards Christians because we've been known more often than not to be hypocrites than to be people that are full of faith. We lack the proof of our faith. We, we lack the evidence. And so James here is going after the proof. You see, the proof of my beliefs are found in my behavior towards others. That's where the proof lies. You see, you could talk to Jane and you could say, hey, I want to know if Micaiah is a good Christian, so you live with him. Tell me about that. You see, the proof that my faith is real is based on how I treat Jane. You could go to my son and my daughter and you could say, hey, is that belief real? Because he professes one thing, but is there any proof at home? There has to be proof, evidence. And this morning, where is the proof of your faith? Is there any proof? And this morning, there are three things that will bury or hide the proof. First of all, we see it in verse number one. Did you catch it? My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, who can stand over there or sit on the floor? Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? How sad is that? Let me see your hands. How many of you have ever been judged before? Ever been judged? Yeah, I think we all have. If you've ever gone on a job interview, you've been judged. When you go to a job interview, you're sitting there and that's all they're going to do for the next 45 minutes to an hour is judge you. And then to make matters worse, they want something called references. This is actually, they want to get your friends and family, their input to help judge you. That's all the interview is. It's their, their, their 45 minutes to an hour to just judge you. It doesn't feel good. Some of you, you've experienced judgment based on the color of your skin. Some of you face judgment because you are a Christian. Some of you face judgment because of one thing or another. You're too young, too old, you're too good looking, too bad looking. We all face judgment. Every, every situation, you're going to sense judgment. And it's a terrible feeling, isn't it? How much worse is it to come into the house of God, to come into church, and to find judgment there? You see, in that day and age, the church met in the synagogue on Sunday because the Jewish believers, they met on Saturday, on Sabbath. So those synagogues were empty, so the Christians would meet there. And people heard about this new growing movement of Christians, and so they would come in. They didn't know how to dress, and so the only thing that they knew was, hey, flaunt your wealth. And that day, your clothes determined your status. Not much has changed, appears, today's culture. And then also how many rings you had on your finger. And so you would watch as a rich person would walk in with their nice clothes and all their rings. And then you'd watch somebody else walk into the synagogue and they didn't look so good, didn't smell so good. Their clothes were poor, just rags, patches on them. 
And then they would say to the rich person, oh, we got a seat for you. Come up here, down front. We got the VIP section just for you. Oh, poor person, go stand in the back. Better yet, if you get tired, you can sit on the floor. This really happened. And James is speaking out and saying, wait a minute. You are jumping to judgment because you are assuming that person's wealth equals that they have more worth. Now, they may have more net worth, but your wealth has nothing to do with your worth. And in today's culture and society, that's why we buy expensive things. It's why we drive expensive cars. Sometimes it's out of, we want people to think that we have more worth because of our wealth. And here in this passage, James goes on to say, hey, don't you know that what will a man give for the price of his soul? His soul is worth more than all the wealth in the world. Over and over, we see that our wealth doesn't determine our worth, but how many people they base their worth on their wealth. And so in this passage, he's trying to help us not jump to judgment. And we've felt judged before. We've, we've experienced that. It's no fun. And he's also saying that, hey, some of you poor, you don't feel like you have worth. But God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. The poor. There's this invert that happens. And so in this passage, it's real easy to jump to judgment. And what judgment does is it separates people. It puts people into categories. And it puts people into situations where we can judge them. And what judging does is it makes me bigger and the other person smaller. And we, we kind of like to look down our noses at people and we like to feel bigger and more superior. And so we kind of, you know, start to judge them. We judge the way they parent. We judge the way they dress. Or we judge the way they act, the way they talk, or the color of their skin or, or, something, or, or something about them. We'll start to judge. And all of a sudden, what happens? I start to feel bigger. They start to look smaller. And we call that a bully. Because that's all it is. And we can end up doing that. And here James is writing, he's saying, that's terrible that we do that. Because our attitude and actions, when it comes to people, we shouldn't base those on appearances. But sometimes we look at somebody and say, oh, I'm going to treat them better than somebody else. Or I'm going to treat them less on, based on their appearance. You see, we've separated. There's that great divorce. You know, the Harvard Business Journal said this, value is based on the customer's perceived value of the goods. That's Harvard Business Journal. The value is based on the customer's perceived value of the goods. So what he's saying there is value is based on perception. Sadly, today we do the same thing. We look at somebody and determine their value real quick. We can look at them and say, oh, you're valuable. You're not valuable based on our perception. And how sad is that? Because what happens is what we see is only on the surface. You know that, right? I can't see your heart. I can't see your motive. I can't see your past. I can't see your hurts. I can't see the argument you went through. I can't see the sickness in your family. I can't see the divorce. I can't see the suffering. I can't see that you're struggling for a job or that you're trying to overcome some difficult hangup. I can't see the, the, the negative in your life. I can't see any of it. So for me to judge simply proves my ignorance. That's all it does. You know, the more we judge, the less we have room to love. And so we live in a culture nowadays that seems like judging is our favorite pastime. And so we need to turn into miners, excavators, and explorers. See, they knew how to search under the surface. They knew how to get below and find the value. You see, the gold isn't just sitting there on top. You got to dig for it. 
What if you sat down with somebody and you said, ah, I don't know anything about this person. What if I just sit here and learn about them and just kind of dig a little bit deeper underneath the surface to see where their significance lies? Because each and every one of you have significance. Because you are not a physical being having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being having a physical experience. Because the only thing that is eternal about you is your spirit. That's what's going to live on. You see, you're good looking people. Beautiful, handsome. You had a great strong jawline. Excellent looking people. But Jesus didn't die on a cross because you're so good looking. He didn't say, you're too good looking to go to hell. I need to die to save your good looks. No, he died for your soul. That's the part of you that has immeasurable, eternal worth and value. But yet, what do we measure each other on? Oh, you're good looking. Oh, you fit the right body shape, right body type. Oh, you have the right schools. And so in this passage, James is writing saying, hey, stop jumping to judgment. And we need to see below the surface to see the significance do you remember in 1 Samuel, chapter number 16, the prophet Samuel is about to anoint the next king of Israel? And he goes to the house of Jesse, and Jesse has eight sons, and Jesse brings the first seven, and there's Eliab, and Eliab was tall, dark, and handsome. And what did Samuel say, the prophet say? Oh, this surely is the Lord's anointed. And then God told Samuel, I haven't chosen him. And he's like, okay, I'll go to the next. There's seven here to choose from. So I'll go to the next. God said, I haven't chosen him. And then the next, I haven't chosen him. And finally, Samuel goes through all seven of Jesse's first sons. And then Samuel's like, wait a minute, I know I heard from God. Do you have anybody else? And then as an afterthought, Jesse's like, oh yeah, I got one more. He's David. He's out tending the sheep. Fun fact, many people believe that the reason Jesse didn't want to call David is because David was an illegitimate son, one that was actually not really Jesse's. That's why in Psalms 51, he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. And so Jesse didn't want to have his illegitimate son be crowned or anointed the next king, but yet God chose him. And what did God say to Samuel that he wants to speak to us? Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And you and I, we still can't see the heart. But the truth is we shouldn't jump to judgment about somebody. And in this passage, that's the challenge. You see, the more a person judge, the less the person loves. So in verse number four, he says, doesn't this discrimination show you that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So how do we fight this favoritism? How do we push back against this? How do, we, how do we see this favoritism overcome? Because the church was playing favorites. They were saying, oh, we want all the wealthy and good-looking people to sit here and all the poor down and out. You guys, uh, you can go find another church. How sad is that? So we need to fight favoritism. But here's the problem with favoritism. To fight something, you can't like something. Otherwise, you'll never fight it. And here's the reality of it. We all kind of like playing favorites. And I'm not talking about your favorite ice cream, your favorite restaurant, your favorite sports team. I'm saying we kind of like favoritism. There's a long line at the restaurant. And you're like, oh my goodness, I don't want to wait in a long line for the restaurant. And then the maitre d', the hostess, they see you at the back of the line. And they call you up. They say, yeah, yeah, you. Come on to the front of the line. And then you kind of like, yes. And as you pass everybody, you kind of, you know, uh-huh, walking to the front of the line. You're happy about it, you know, and you give him that handshake, and in the handshake, there's a crumpled up dollar bill, and he looks at it, and he's like, 
A dollar? No, no, you go to the back of the line. You only gave me a dollar? That's it? No, add a couple zeros here, and then you can come to the front. We like favoritism when it benefits us. That's why we don't end favoritism, because we like favoritism when it benefits us. But the problem with favoritism is when it benefits us, it means it's less beneficial to somebody else. And that is the antithesis of what it means to be a Christian, because the Bible teaches us in honor, preferring one another above ourselves. There should be preference to others because we understand what the scripture teaches that the first shall be last and the last shall be first so we understand that there's more in the kingdom of God to go around so I'll let somebody else go first I'll prefer somebody else I'll let somebody else have the good position I'll let somebody else take first pick because I want to see somebody else blessed and I'll get behind somebody else to help them succeed because I know God has enough goodness and enough favor and enough grace to go around to bless me but I want to see God do something in somebody else I don't mind fighting favoritism. But if you feel like, no, 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 I've got I've to have it. It's about me. We won't fight favoritism. I laugh sometimes because my wife will, will always say that it's a good thing that I'm riding with you in the car. And I'll say, what do you mean? She said, because every time you get pulled over, when the police officer sees me in the car, they just give you a warning ticket and you go about your merry way. And she said, see, favor ain't fair. You know, and I'm just like, wait a minute, that doesn't, that, that doesn't work. You know, and uh, so some of us, we like favoritism. We like it, but we've got to step back and say, is favoritism creeping into the church? Is, 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 am I playing favorites? And I need to step back and say, wait a minute, how do I do that? Because we admire Mother Teresa spending her life in the slums of Calcutta. We admire Lottie Moon, who gave her life to China. We admire Amy Carmichael, who spent her life in India. We admire Father Damien, a missionary who worked in the leper colonies in Molokai, Hawaii. We admire all of them, and we say, hey, pastor, that's not natural to serve and give and love like that. You're absolutely right. It's not natural. It's supernatural. We need God's help to fight favoritism. We need supernatural help. You see, can you accept without prejudice and assist others without presumption? You see, God's impartial love is only made invalid by our favoritism. Let me say it again. God's impartial love is made invalid by our favoritism. Because you and I are the only God some people are going to see. We're the only Jesus that they're going to see. So when we are playing favorites, they think that God plays favorites. And we need to help the world see that, no, God loves everyone. God cares about them. And so I want to give you some things. First of all, we show courtesy to all. Courtesy. Seems like courtesy has kind of died in the world, hasn't it? You say, what is courtesy? Courtesy is actually an attitude. That's what courtesy is. It's an attitude. Courtesy. It's the attitude that, hey, I want you to go ahead of me. I want you to get first in line. I want you to be blessed. I want you to have it. It's that attitude. You see, the most attractive part of our faith is our attitude towards others. That's what's attractive about Christianity. What was attractive was our attitude, but sadly, our attitude towards others has gotten soured, critical, judgmental, toxic towards others. Instead of it being attractional, instead of saying, man, I love Southridge Church because their attitude towards other people is amazing because they just love people there. It doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter where they're from, doesn't matter what they've done, doesn't matter who they vote for, doesn't matter how they dress. They just come and they just appreciate that I'm there. There's an attitude. You see, that's what courtesy is. It's that 
attitude, the most attractive part of our faith is our attitude towards others because our attitude, hear me now, lacks ism. Our attitude lacks ism. You say, what do you mean our attitude lacks ism? Let me define it. Our attitude lacks cynicism, racism, ageism, sexism, classism, egotism, fatalism, hedonism, humanism, legalism, pessimism, pluralism, determinism, emotionalism, terrorism. Our faith doesn't have all those isms. Faith lacks ism. But yet we live in a world that has a whole lot of isms. May it never be said of our church that you can find an ism or a schism in here. That people know that you come to that church, they don't have an ism. Somebody once brought up to me, they said, why don't you speak out on this and speak out on this? And I said, you know, you just need to come to our church because uh, white is the minority there. There's just a, a good mix of people from every background, every economic spectrum. Well, it doesn't matter. Oh, we, we've got it all there. It's a good reflection of heaven. It's a very healthy balance. We want to reflect the community that we're a part of so that somebody can attend Southridge Church and say, I see myself there. They don't care how young you are or how old you might be. They want you there. It doesn't matter because there's no ism in the church, and there shouldn't be. But yet we've allowed so much ism to happen because we're playing favoritism. And ism needs to die. So it starts with courtesy. Second of all, it moves to compassion for all. Compassion. Compassion. All believers are brothers and sisters in Christ, meaning we are family. So I show compassion to family. We love family. They say blood is thicker than water, right? I don't know about you, but my family has its share fair of dysfunction, like every family. But if you ever said this, you say, well, they're family. Well, they're family. What's that mean? You help them out. You're like, I wouldn't loan anybody else money, but they're family. I wouldn't let anybody else borrow my car, but they're family. I wouldn't let anybody else move in, but they're family. Isn't it amazing that when it comes to family, things change? And here, the Bible is teaching us that they're a part of the family, so that changes the way I treat them, so I can show compassion for all. Here's what's interesting. Verse number four. I found this powerful. Doesn't this discrimination show you that your judgments are guided? And it uses this word, evil motives. We said earlier, I don't know your heart. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. So I want to give you a statement that's pretty powerful. Motive is concealed until it is revealed in our actions. I don't know your motive until I see your actions. And then your actions reveal what your motive was, whether you had a good or an evil motive. You see, the world doesn't know our heart. They only see what we do with our hands. And we're supposed to build up. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to serve. So first of all, it starts with courtesy to all. It moves to compassion for all. And then it shows consistency with all. That means there's no impartiality. That consistency, that this is the way we treat everybody that we love everybody, we care about everybody, wherever we go. I'm kind of tired of this, and I don't know if you've ever seen this. You're at the checkout stand at a grocery store, Costco, Starbucks, doesn't matter where it is. You probably experienced this. And there's a new cashier or something's going on, and you see the person agitated, frustrated that the transaction's not being finished up. And you see the person stomping their foot, you know, hands on the hip, the big sigh. <sighs> and then they do this, and this is what really bugs me. 
Then they look at the line and then they give that look like this idiot over here doesn't know how to work a register. The poor person is brand new, learning the machine. It's stressful and they've got you. And then you feel like you've got to lead a revolt that says, we want a new cashier. We want a new cashier. And they got the whole line turning against this poor cashier. And I think, how terrible is that? And then on Sunday, we're like, we love everybody. And it's like, wait a minute. What happened to your consistency? How about the way you treat everybody here is the way you treat everybody everywhere. Yes, they're going to make your dinner wrong. Yes, they're going to get your Starbucks wrong. Yes, they're going to get your grocery stuff wrong. They're going to, all kinds of wrongs going to happen. It's easy to love when they are lovable. That doesn't take any skill, work, effort, or supernatural enablement. But when things are going wrong and bad, that's when we say, okay, God, you're giving me an opportunity to trust your supernatural enabling to be with this person at the register who is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, couple of fries short of a Happy Meal. Man, this person, the elevator doesn't go to the top floor, but man, Jesus, you love them and I can love them too. And in that moment, you're transforming this. And instead of being the person trying to get this whole line frustrated, you can look at the line and say, hey, this person's brand new. They're working really hard. And aren't you glad they actually wanted to work? All the help wanted signs, a bunch of people don't even want to work these days. So I'm thankful this person actually wanted to work. So let's give it up for this person. And everybody's going to get up for this person. She or he may have overcharged you by $50, $70, but you're like, it's okay, all right? We love you. And come to Southridge Church where we love a person there because we want to show consistency. And what consistency is, is a healthy addiction. It's about attitude. It's about action. And that's that healthy addiction. This week, I went camping. I hadn't gone to Mount Madonna in probably 34 years, all right? The whole place has really changed. I hadn't been there in a long time. We had a great time. But there is a, um, an old, abandoned, ruined uh, ranch house by, I think the guy's name is Henry Miller. Any of you been up there? Have you seen it? Oh, man, a few of you. It's pretty cool. I had no idea it was there. On a tombstone, not even a tombstone. It's not a tombstone. It was a monument. Here's a great quote. He said this, right wrongs nobody. And I stood there and I just didn't get it. And I have blonde roots. This is so it takes me a while. So, you know, you think real hard and I'm like, right wrongs nobody. Ah, that's really good. That's really good. I mean, that's, that's it. Right wrongs nobody. What a great motto for life. That that's what he wanted. More than that ruins of his ranch house being there, that's more powerful. And what if Christians had that? So many people don't want to be around us Christians because we do wrong and hurt people. So as we close, turn your attention to verse 8. It says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. I love he calls it a royal law. Like this is just what people in the kingdom do because we're part of kingdom. We're not culture, we're kingdom. God is our king, and this is his dome, his dominion, and we are subjects of that king. And here he says, this is a royal law. The royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Wouldn't it be wild if this November, when you go to the polls and they hand you your ballot, one of the laws that they want to change is this law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Wouldn't that be wild that we had to vote on that law? 
Wouldn't it just be the weirdest thing if we had a vote on it? It'd probably never pass. It probably wouldn't pass, if we were honest. Like, we would say we're going to vote for it, but then we're not going to vote for it because you're like, now it's a law that I have to love people. Like, I have to law the ex and love the ex. I have to law, uh, love my boss. I have to love, oh, I don't know about that. But it, it, regardless, whether they put it on the ballot or they don't put it on the ballot, we live in his kingdom, and that's part of the law, to love one another. And that's tough sometimes. It's tough because we look at people and we don't see the value. And I call this a double bottom line. I say to business leaders all the time, you have an amazing opportunity because you get to be a part of the double bottom line. You can make a lot of money and you can help a lot of great causes. Double bottom line. You can do both. Not everybody gets that opportunity. But if you have that opportunity, you get the double bottom line. I love it. It's like multitasking. I love if I can fold laundry and finish an audiobook. I feel so much more accomplished or talk to family. I'm just like, I did two for one. This is great. And this passage, he's saying, hey, what is good for you is also good for others. And isn't that great? Where what's good for you is good for others. But the problem is we struggle. Jesus even said in John 13, by, all, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That's how we're to be known, by our love one for another. But it's hard to love one another, isn't it? Isn't that the struggle? That God calls you to see what's good for you is also good for them. But what gets in the way of that double bottom line? Judging and favoritism. Because now we put them in a category that says, I don't have to love them. Because I've made them so small and insignificant when God says they have great value. The best way to illustrate this, I think, is to uh, pull out a $100 bill. I did this in the first service. I'm, I'm doing this service. This is a $100 bill. How much is it worth? Excellent. This is my favorite service because the first service thought it was a trick question. And I was like, no, it's not a trick question. So nobody answered. It was like, I don't know. And I was like, no, it's a real $100 bill. And uh, um, now I don't know where this came from. I don't know where it's been. I don't know who's had it. This $100 bill, if it was a part of an illegal transaction, what's it worth? If it's from the wrong side of the tracks, what's it worth? If it's from the right side of the tracks, what's it worth? If this was at a really awful place, like a really wicked place, what's it worth? What if a really terrible person used this once? What's it worth? What's it worth? You mean even after I stepped on it? Even after I crumpled it up? Even after it's been through everything it's gone through? I don't know where it's been. I don't know what all's happened to it. But its value has never changed. That's your life and mine. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've experienced, but your value has never changed. Your value is immeasurable. Your value goes beyond what I can see. 
because your value wasn't decided by me. And what judging and favoritism does, it gives me the power to decide your value. And who am I to decide another human being's value? The Latin word is you are created in the imago Dei. That's the image of God. If you don't have the imago Dei, then guess what? I don't have to treat you very nice. But out of the eight billion people on the planet, everyone is imago Dei, has the image of God. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter if they have a handicap. Doesn't matter if they have some dysfunction. Doesn't matter how tall, how short, how wide, how thin. Doesn't matter if they're cross-eyed. Doesn't matter if they have a perfect jawline. Doesn't matter if they have parents or don't have parents. Doesn't matter if they're single or married. Doesn't matter if they've been abused. Doesn't matter if they had a perfect life. Their value was not set by Micaiah Ermler and it was not set by you. It was set by God Almighty. God who said, my son Jesus will give everything for them. Their value was set by the price that somebody paid for it. And Jesus said, the price that I'm willing to pay is my life. Jesus set your value. The son of God said, I'll die for you. So this morning, as we struggle with judging and favoritism, we understand that $100, the value, it's not set by me. I know what everybody's thinking. Is he going to give that $100 away? I am. Yeah, I am. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to give $100 away. There you go, man. It pays to come to church. First service was like, man, I wanted to go to the first service. But it's one of those things where the value we've got to get back to. It's not based on how I see him. That's surface. So right now, God, this person just cut me off. This person frustrated me. This person really upset me. So I got to close my eyes because what I'm seeing is distorting the real view. So I got to close my eyes and I need to see their significance. I need to see with eyes of faith where we walk by faith, not by sight. I spoke with one of our trustees last week. He said, every week I drive by our land. And he says, I look up on that hill. And he said, you know, I can see our building there. He said, I see it. And he said, I've got to see it before I see it. Can you see the value in that person? Can you look at them and say, I wonder how God sees that? Because we all have our faults. We've all messed up. But what's happening now is some people don't feel worthy to come to the presence of God. And there are some people you're inviting to go to church and they don't feel worthy. I have a running joke with my barber and the person who cuts hair next to my barber. They were like, we can't go to your church. We've been wanting to, but we just think we're going to catch on fire. We're just going to explode and go to hell right then and there. And they're halfway kidding and they're halfway not. And they're like, we just don't know. And I'm like, our church is the perfect place to come. You could go. But you know why they're afraid? probably because they met another Christian and we judged and we played favorites. And we may not be able to end it. We may not be able to end it. But maybe this week, God's going to give you and I an opportunity 
We say, okay, all right, I'm not going to judge that person. Or maybe there's a person that you're struggling with, a coworker, a teacher, a friend, a family member, that you say, I just want to judge them, but God, would you add some super on my natural so that I can see them as you see them and so I can treat them as you would want me to treat them? Because these hands are your hands, these feet are your feet, my heart is your heart, and I want to love and serve as you would have me to. And they will beat a path to the door of the church that you attend and say, I want to be a place, part of a place like that. Because they get it. They'll finally understand that there is a love that transforms everything. And then God will look down and say, there's the proof that you believe. Your behavior is the proof. Can we stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you sometimes for the gentle conviction of your spirit. Sometimes it's heavy and sometimes it's gentle. But the challenge doesn't change. And so we thank you and we praise you for it. So Father, right now, would you stir and help us as we fight favoritism? Would you allow there to be no more ism in our Christianity? We pray that we would have a heart that just seeks to love you and to love others. Can I pray for you? Heads bowed and eyes closed. You say, yeah, I I need some super on my natural to be able to do that. Because you're going to be faced with people and people can be challenging. Can I pray for you? Is that you? Slip up your hand. Can I pray for you? Oh, amen. I see that hand. That hand. Oh, God bless you. God bless you. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you help our church family? Help me. We want to be brothers and sisters in the family of God that we know how to love one another. And we don't just tolerate, put up with, and accept, but we just unashamedly love. Kind of like that song, The Reckless Love of God. Oh, if we could take that and live that out, that our love was a little bit reckless, that we just kind of loved. So help those that raise their hand. And maybe those that in their heart, they know they're doing a work. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. And if you'd like to be prayed with or you want to come forward, I'll be down here at the front. But let's together sing this last song. It's an old song. It's a classic song. It's an invitation song. It's I Surrender All. And may that be the cry of our hearts as we sing together. Thank you again for spending time with us today. And a special thanks to those who give generously to Southridge Church. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about Southridge, you can follow us on social media at Southridge Now. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share it with a friend or even take a screenshot and share it on your social story. Make sure you tag Southridge Church and let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.